Help defend the church by becoming a supporter of Family Life International. Your contributions enable us to continue our work to promote the faith, defend the family and promote the sanctity of life. Make a real difference today. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk slash donate. As I've already said, Gabrielle is a German author and international speaker on the global sexual revolution and Christian spirituality. In her presentation here today, she faces squarely the sexual crisis of the Catholic Church, of which we're all aware, which she argues is actually, believe it or not, a reason for Catholics to stay Catholics. The gates of hell, she argues, shall not prevail, not even the hell of sexual abuse. She is the author of a book, Sex, The Global Sexual Revolution. Gabrielle, floor is yours. friends. I'm very honored to be invited here and it is a joy to be among friends. We are probably the people who need these lectures the least <laughs> and we have to take it out. Reverend priests, fathers, it is a deep joy to be amongst priests or have priests around us who are true priests and to exemplify for us what it means to walk the path, the narrow path to the gate of heaven. We are deeply, I am deeply thankful for your talk. Uh, it brought back to me the center of my spirit, spirituality, or not enlightened more, which is anyway the center of my own spirituality, and that is the Eucharist. I'm a convertant to Catholic faith late in my life. Uh, after 50, at the deepest point of my life, which was the separation of my from my husband, we have three children. Uh, since then, I live alone. Uh, and so I speak about the global sexual revolution from a low place and not on a high horse. Behind it is conversion, behind it is deeper understanding what Jesus gives to us, what we are taught by the Catholic Church, for which I'm extremely thankful to the present moment. So the, my title is The Sexual Crisis of the Church, A Reason to Stay. The history of the church is a history of crisis from the very beginning, 2,000 years ago, at the first Council of the Apostles in Jerusalem. Then already they had to reject false teachings. They settled the conflict over the need of circumcision for salvation with a proud declaration, quote, from Acts, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled 
and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. To refrain from sexual immorality was a shibboleth of the early Christians, and it is a shibboleth for Christians to the present day. Even if the forces of the obscuration of divine truth are strong within the church. It is indeed a miracle that the church still exists as the oldest institution we have on earth. Miracle means something happens which cannot be explained by natural or human cause and effect, but only by divine action. To phrase it more correctly, more concretely, the enduring existence of the Church of Christ can only be explained by divine intervention. Jesus keeps his promise. He said, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Matthew 16, 18. Having proved that he kept his promise for 2,000 years, we have reason to believe that he will do so until the end of time, when his bride, the church, is prepared for his second coming. What are the main issues of conflict and crisis over the millennia to the present day? Six points. The everlasting conflict of power between church and state. The battle over dogma, heretic movements, abuse of power within the church called clericalism, simony, the selling and buying of offices and other desirable goods of the church like indulgences, and the moral decay of the clergy. Listen to this reproach, quote, the cancer-like evil of homosexuality is nesting in the structure of the church. Like a wild, furious beast, it ranges in the sheep pen of Jesus Christ with such audaciousness and liberty that the salvation of many will be secured more easily under the yoke of laymen than after the voluntary entry into the service of God under the iron tyranny of Satan. End of quote. What is your guess for the timing of this, de of this denouncement? Well, it was brought forth in a so-called Liber Antigomorianus to Pope Leo IX nearly a thousand years ago by the Benedictine monk Saint Peter Damiani. The name of this tractatus alludes to the town Gomorrah, which was destroyed by God because of its sexual vices. So you see, the problem of homosexuality in the church is not new. Many people are dismayed by the sins of the church and point their finger at an institution where Pharisees and hypocrites seem to abound. Jesus himself did not spare them of extremely harsh public exposure. For non-believers, this is a welcome opportunity to bring down the church. For baptized heathens, it is a reason to leave the church. For believers and friends of Jesus, it is a cause of suffering within the church 
which is the body of Christ and a reason to stay. The church is not an enclave in this world with a drawbridge protecting its members from the powerful secular forces always drawing away people from God. The church is a community of sinners under the force of original sin as everybody else. The only difference, and they strive for holiness with the grace of God. By their shepherds, they should be called to the narrow gate that leads to eternal life. If that is neglected, the striving for holiness and the call on this path, the church loses its raison d'etre. The forces of the world will go after her and her members, after her and her members, and demolish whatever is a sign of Jesus Christ. People, buildings, Christian culture, and the influence of Christians on the culture, and of course, after her priests. This is happening all around us. Could there have been a more telling symbol of the state of the church than the burning of the Cathedral of Notre Dame? On the first day of the Week of Passion of 2019, the cathedral's basic structures are still standing. The church structures in Europe are still standing, but they are no longer filled with believers who kneel before the Eucharist, who ask God merciful forgiveness in confession, who still know what they believe and proclaim their faith, who walk the narrow path to holiness. Hundreds of millions of euros have been donated to rebuild Notre Dame. Will it become a temple of Freemasonry? Or will the Catholic Cathedral remain to be the heart of European Christianity with a burning red light inside that points to the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ in the tabernacle? <coughs> The sexual crisis of the church. The basic issue of the crisis of our time centers around sexuality. The Catholic Church was the main bulwark against it and therefore was and is the main object of aggression of the cultural sexual revolutionists. But the Catholic bulwark is now crumbling under the force of the global sexual revolution. The tip of the iceberg is the shocking reality of widespread sexual abuse of minors through priests up to the top levels of the hierarchy. And the covering up of these devastating crimes by those in positions of responsibility. It is only the tip of the iceberg. The iceberg is the abuse of the gift of sexuality, the gift of sexuality, an expression of John Paul II. In the whole of society, namely the global sexual revolution. Let us have a brief look at this gift of sexuality. As we read in the first page of the Bible, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. 
And the second account of creation, we hear the rejoicing of Adam over the creation of Eve and that the two become one flesh. Here we have it all in a nutshell. Our God is a God of life and love. He has created us with a powerful attraction to the other sex and thus called us to be co-creators of the human being endowed with an eternal soul. It is a plan of love in which marriage, sexuality, and family have a central place. God is love. It is mirrored in the heart of man and woman as a yearning for lasting love. And God is life, for love creates life. The God of love wants us to be where he is in eternity. But for that, we must learn to love with body, mind, and soul. Sex is the most intimate encounter a person can have with another person. It always engages the whole person, body, soul, and spirit. The sexual act can uplift the person to true love in the presence of God or lead into the unfathomable abysses of hell. Man is created with free will. Is he or she willing to use the gift of sexuality as an expression of faithful love between a man and a woman open to the creation of life? Or will he or she use this gift for the isolated satisfaction of lust of the body? <coughs> to fulfill his plan of love, God makes moral demands on the person demands of chastity and faithfulness and responsibility. If the person attempts to only engage the body for the satisfaction of lust, the soul and the spirit will be wounded with all the terrible social consequences of ruined lives, ruined marriages, ruined families, a, a, a scarred souls of children for life immense suffering all around us, a society falling apart and drifting into a new kind of totalitarianism. The fundamental cause of the crisis of society and church is the breakdown of faith in God, an accelerating development since the Renaissance. It has now led to the total denial of the order of creation by claiming that man and can choose and change his own sex. Man is made for adoration. If we do not adore God as the creator of heaven and earth, we will adore the human creative force, and that is sexuality. But sexuality is an idol and idols tend to devour their worshippers. As a society, we have become hostage to the idol of sex. Despite the devastating consequences, we seem to have lost the power to free ourselves of that slavery. Until today, until today's sexual revolution, heterosexuality has been normal and normative in Christian cultures and form the basis 
or for a social structure built upon the family. For Christians who adhere to God's word, the normativity and normality of heterosexuality cannot be changed. This is stated unambiguously in the Old and New Testament. Look up the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you will find all the references to the Bible and see what the, the Catechism itself says. The concept of sex only in marriage between a man and a woman in Christian teaching anchored in God's revelation, which has been advocated by the Catholic Church to this very day. With his theology of the body, John Paul II unfolded the deep and inspiring reasons for this teaching. The global sexual revolution instigated by the student rebellion of 1968 shattered the moral foundations of the European culture. Within a few decades, the moral basis of the Christian culture has been destroyed. Now it is the hedonistic sexual norms that have become normative, and their implementation is being enforced through increasingly totalitarian methods. Under this pressure, the church began to loosen its teaching. This started right away after the rejection of the encyclical Humanae Vitae of Paul VI in 1968 by several bishop conferences and moral theologians. The encyclical confirmed the dual nature of the sexual act, unity in love and procreation. See Article 11 and 12 of the encyclical. Once the connection between sexuality and procreation is theoretically and practically abandoned, the door is open for justification of any kind of sexual activity. Yeah? Once this is broken, it's, we are not dealing only with homosexuality, but you can do anything to satisfy your sexual desire. The moral theologian Charles E. Curran, C-U-R-R-A-N, who organized protest against the encyclical before its ink was even dry, became one of the trailblazers of the moral theological justification of homosexual practice. He urged the magisterium of the Roman Catholic Church to acknowledge same-sex relationships as a moral good. The dam of Catholic moral teaching broke, and before long, seminaries were taught that all kinds of non-marital sex was okay. The Kosnick Report, which in the 1970s became the standard work of American seminaries, provided justification in moral theology for masturbation, unmarried cohabitation, divorce, and homosexuality. The unleashing of the powerful sexual drive out of the bottle of biblical and sexual morality is the root cause of the rampant sexual abuse in society and in the church. 
Why is sexual abuse of minors through priests so terrible and devastating? In a new study, Father Paul Sullins, PhD, Catholic priest and sociology professor emeritus at the Catholic University of America, analyzed three major studies of the clerical sex abuse in the Catholic Church in the USA. The report of the John Jay College of Criminal Justice, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report of August 2018, <coughs> and data from a 2002 survey of Catholic priests by the Los Angeles Times. This his findings are confirmed also by the German abuse study of 2008 in the name of the Bishop's Conference. The results show <clears throat> that the percentage of homosexuals among priests is eight times higher than in the general population. And that there's a strong correlation between the percentage of self-described homosexuals in the Catholic priesthood and the incidence of sexual abuse of minors by clergy. Around 80% of sexual abuse within the Catholic Church is perpetrated by priests on boys shortly before and after puberty. puberty. Apparently, the uncontrolled sexual desire of priests is preferentially directed to the untouched, youthful, beautiful bodies of boys around puberty. This is called ephebophilia. If Ephebe is the, the young boy around puberty. <clears throat> Let us face it. If we didn't have homosexual active priests in the clergy who are unable to control the sexual drive, we would have 80% fewer victims. Of course, homosexuality is not the cause of abuse of boys by men but the precondition. In the same way, heterosexuality is not the cause of abuse of girls by men, but the precondition. Abuse takes place when the sex drive goes completely out of control and has gained so much power over the person that he is even prepared to become a criminal to satisfy his sexual desires. The perpetrator loses all inhibitions of conscience and can no longer perceive the devastating suffering he inflicts on the other. If sexual abuse happens in any relationship with a structural imbalance of power between adult and child or between older children and younger children, which is increasingly happening, <coughs> it rips the soul of the victim, scars it for life, and throws off his whole path of life. Evil enters the innermost chamber of the soul. This innermost chamber is meant to be a wedding chamber where a man and a woman take the mutual risk of totally giving one to the other in love. It is also the wedding chamber of the soul with Jesus Christ. The priest is meant to be the guardian of the soul of the people 
entrusted to him by God, for which he will one day be accountable. He is meant to be the voice and hands of Jesus Christ who can show us the path to healing for our wounded souls. A young person will look up to the priest and trust and rely on his spiritual fatherhood. If this trust is abused sexually, mostly at an age where the young person has not had an, any sexual experience within the context of love and attraction to the other sex, it is absolutely devastating. The victim of homosexual abuse experiences a violation of body and soul on ever deeper levels. First level, being used as an object of sexual satisfaction. This happens everywhere and is always a denigration of the dignity of the people involved, even if it's consensual. Being used as an object of sexual satisfaction. Two, being used as an object for sexual satisfaction by a person with power over the victim. Three, being used as an object for sexual, sexual satisfaction by a person with power and authority invested with human trust, father, uncle, teacher, coach, educator. Four, being used as an object for sexual satisfaction by a person with power and authority that represents Jesus Christ, invested with human and spiritual trust, the priest. And five, being used as an object for sexual satisfaction by a person with power and authority that represents Jesus Christ, invested with human and spiritual trust that initiates the victim into homosexual sex. Can there be anything more devastating to mind, soul, and body for a young person? How will he or she ever be able to trust, to have faith, to love a spouse, to be a good father, to walk the path to eternal life at the hand of Mother Church? As a father of the church, Pope Benedict XVI Emeritus broke his silence, as you all know, and spoke out to the scandal of sexual abuse in the Catholic Church in Lent 2019. He raised his voice as a shepherd who must warn his flock of falling prey to the wolves. He pointed out the root cause of the crisis, the absence of God, and the corruption of moral theology. May I have the bottle of water, please? <laughs> Quote for Benedict. Ultimately, the reason is the absence of God. God is regarded as the private affair of a small group and can no longer stand as the guiding principle for the community as a whole. In the 1960s, an egregious event occurred on a scale unprecedented in history. One can say that in the 20 years from 1960 to 1980, the previously normative standard regarding sexuality collapsed entirely. 
The beginning was state, the beginning was state prescribed and supported introduction of children and youth into the nature of sexuality. In Germany, the then Minister of Health, he calls her by name, had a film made in which everything that had previously not been allowed to be shown publicly, including sexual intercourse, was now shown for the purpose of education. Among the freedoms that the revolution of 68 saw, sought to fight for was this all-out sexual freedom, one which no longer conceded, which no longer conceded any norms. The propensity for violence, which was a mark of these years, is linked to this mental and spiritual collapse. Part of the physiognomy of the revolution of 68 was that pedophilia was then also presented as allowed and appropriate by the Green Party in Germany. It came up recently, a few years ago, and they once say to the press, that was a mistake and that's it. Yeah? Nobody really makes a problem and a fuss because of it. Yeah? Pope Benedict points to the corruption of moral theology which paved the way by denying that there are moral absolutes. Quote Benedict, consequently there could no longer be anything that constituted an absolute good, nor anything fundamentally evil, but only relative value judgments, contingent on the moment and on circumstance. End of quote. Within the global pestilence of pornography, this is the soil in which the poisonous fruit of sexual abuse of minors in society at large and in the church grew. The breakthrough of the sexual revolution of 1968 took place shortly after the Second Vatican Council, which was perceived by many as a loosening of binding Catholic teaching and practice. With astonishing speed, the relativistic moral theology entered the priest seminaries and led to an almost complete breakdown of the previous form of preparation, words of Pope Benedict. To name the sexual revolution as the root cause of the crisis of sexual abuse within the church arouses hate in those who carry their share of responsibility for the crisis of the church and the devastating wounds in the souls of thousands of victims. It is the same hatred that led to the persecution and finally execution of Jesus Christ. Neither Pope Paul VI with his encyclical Humane Vitae, nor the Catechism of the Catholic Church of 1992, or the encyclical Veritatis Splendor by the, the, the light of the truth by John Paul II in 1993 could stop the deluge of the sexual revolution entering the church. Pope Benedict violates a taboo in his letter by speaking of homosexual clubs which were acted more or less openly and significantly changed the climate in the seminaries, end of quote. In fact, practiced homosexuality by priests changed the church from top to bottom. It seems that the entire church is permeated with homosexual networks, seminaries, 
religious communities, lay organizations with cliques that extend to the highest reaches of the Vatican. Shocking new facts are coming to light about actively practiced homosexuality between adult clerics, even within the walls of the Vatican, sexual abuse by priests, bishops, and cardinals of primarily male children and youth, and decades-long toleration and cover-up by the bishops. In his 2012 essay titled With the Pope Against Homo Heresy, written during the pontificate of Benedict XVI, Polish priest Dr. Dariusz Oko, O-K-O, mercilessly brought to light the homosexual ideology and propaganda and the formation of a, quote, homosexual mafia within the church. He writes, quote, a longer quote, not only the number of serious sexual offenses proves the power of that underground, but also to an even greater extent the degree to which the process of selecting candidate bishops has been infiltrated, who were allowed to make a great career in the church despite their having perpetrated such offenses, despite leading a double life. This is further confirmed by the efficiency with which such cases were covered up and concealed the often insurmountable blockage of all attempts made within the church to protect the wronged, to strive for elementary truth and justice. We witness a terrible phenomenon. It turns out the comfort of homosexual offenders is more important than the fate of children and youth, the fate of the whole church. In order for such evil to be concealed and tolerated, it is necessary that the right people hold key positions and that not only a homo lobby, but a homo clique or a homo mafia is created. End of quote, Darius Oko. It is very worrying that the problem of homosexuality has not been addressed at the abuse summit called by Pope Francis in Rome in February 2019. By denying the problem, a cleansing of the church becomes very unlikely. The church is at a crossroad. Will the church change her teaching or will she remain faithful to the Lord? Under the pontificate of Pope Francis, this battle has now reached the level of the magisterium. Strong and powerful fractions in the church are using the historic hour to attempt the final abolition of priestly celibacy and acceptance of homosexuality in the laity and the priesthood. This is part of the policy of the head of the German Bishops' Conference, I'm sorry to say, Cardinal Marx, who is also a member of the advisory group of cardinals to the Pope. The German Bishops' Conference decided to initiate a binding synodal process that will discuss the celibacy of the priesthood, the church's sexual ethics, and clericalism. 
presupposing that here are to be found the causes of the abuse crisis. George Weigel, renowned theologian and autobiography of John Paul II, wrote an open letter to Cardinal Marx, you can find it in the internet of course, published in First Things, appealing to his rationality and his conscience. He ends his sharp criticism with the words, quote, Your Eminence, the German Church, the Catholicism of my ancestors is dying. It will not be revitalized by becoming a simulacrum of moribund liberal Protestantism. End of quote. The situation in most Western European countries who did not suffer under communist dictatorship is hardly any better. The liberal agenda is now openly promoted by cardinals and bishops, supported by the media and lay organizations. This brings to mind what Pope Benedict XVI said on his flight back from Fatima on May 11, 2010, quote, the Lord has told us that the church must suffer in var various ways until the end of the world. Among the new things that we can discover today in the third secret of the message of Fatima is also the fact that attacks against the Pope and the church do not come only from outside. Rather, the sufferings of the church are now coming from the inside. They come from the sins that exist in the church. This has always been known, but today we see it in a truly frightening way. The greatest persecution of the church comes not from external enemies, but grows from the sins within the church. End of quote, Pope Benedict. We are in the midst of a severe power struggle within the Catholic Church. There are those who have succumbed to the breakdown of sexual morality in our time, calling it an evolutionary process to which the Church must adapt by re relativizing the truth of the Gospel, and those who are faithful to the word of Jesus Christ, the Bible, and the teaching of the Catholic Church as laid down in the Catechism of the Catholic Church of 1992. It is unlikely that well-founded arguments, however convincing they may be, can change the mind of those leaders of the Church who want to adapt the Church to the aggressive demands of the sexual revolution. They seem to assume that the present battle against the order of creation will be won by man. They don't seem to see any relevance of the last book of the Bible, the Apocalypse or the Revelation of John for our time. We live in a moment of history where we become witnesses of what may be the greatest crisis of the church. It is a reason to stay. To be a Christian witness does not mean to be in the role of an onlooker, onlooker, but to be in an existential demand for decision in our own life. I admit, 
the temptation to leave the Roman Catholic Church in favor of a congregation more faithful to the Catholic tradition is great. We are not only faced with the abuse of sexuality and the effort to change the teaching of the church in order to accommodate, accommodate contraception, masturbation, cohabitation, divorce, homosexuality, transgender, and the ordination of women as priests, but with liturgical abuse and heretical preaching. The immediate response is anger. Anger expresses itself in aggression, whatever that may mean in the context of the church. When we feel anger, we have the illusion of strength, draw the sword, cut off the ear of the evildoer. But underneath this anger is suffering. And suffering comes with a feeling of powerlessness, a state we find most disagreeable. Jesus can't leave his church because he's the head of the church and the church is his body and his bride. Who suffers most under these conditions? I believe it is the Lord himself. I can't give a theological answer how the state of eternal glory goes together with suffering, but I have no doubt that our God has compassion for his creatures, co-suffering, especially with those who are in most need for his mercy. We are always trying to avoid suffering, either by changing the conditions which create suffering, in our Catholic case, changing to an order that has not joined to the revolutionary so-called reforms in, in the wake of the Second Vatican Council, or leave the Catholic Church altogether and join in one of the 30,000s of evangelical communities. The limitless dynamics of schism in the evangelical movement demonstrate the consequences of abandoning the rock of Peter. Each and every new evangelical congregation was founded because some charismatic leader thought he could do better, be more pure, more faithful to the Bible than the community was in. We heard the complaint of the Benedictine monk Saint Peter Damiani in the 11th century to Pope Leo IX. In reaction to the sad state of the church, a poverty movement began which turned against the hierarchy and the sacraments and started preaching without authorization. Before long, these movements became heretical and caused great disorientation and confusion that lasted for centuries. Cardinal Brandmüller, who for 10 years was the president of the Papal Committee for Church History and is one of the signatories of the Dubia, says, quote, a too self-confident laity is in danger to misconceive the sacramental nature of the church and to slip off into evangelical communities in protest against the failure of the hierarchy, end of quote. In the creed, we proclaim that we believe in the holy Catholic Church. Can we still believe what we proclaim in the face of the abysmal sins of so many priests? In a film of 1965 on Angelo Giuseppe Cardinal Roncalli, later Pope John XXIII, 
the Patriarch of Venice walks through the streets of Venice in a raincoat on top, uh, on top of a black suit, so in civil clothes. He sees a derelict priest in a dirty sultan, unshaved and obviously drunk, standing at the edge of a canal. The cardinal walks up to him, puts his arms around his shoulders, and guides him to the chapel of his palace. There, he puts the violet stole around his neck, kneels down before him, and asks to confess his sins. You see, says the cardinal to the priests, to which sublime service we are called. In a nutshell, the scene tells us that the redemptive power of the sacraments of the church is independent of the virtue of those who administer them, but it is dependent on the apostolic succession and the sacrament of priestly ordination. The priestly garments symbolize the objective holiness of the ordained priest. Underneath is a sinner who hopefully strives for holiness so that he can lead the faithful on the narrow path to salvation. But if he doesn't, if he is in the world and of it, the celebration of Holy Mass will convey the same graces as if it was celebrated by the curé of Ars. The story is told, and this quote is from Dr. Guido Rothoit in an article with the title, The Church Between Peter and Satan. Jesus surely had no illusions about the fallibility of the rock of Peter on whom he founded the church. In Matthew we read, Jesus wants to know what people say about him. Having heard that they believe him to be one of the great prophets returned to earth, he asks his disciples, but who do you say that I am? Peter exclaims, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This and only this, the recognition of who Christ is prompts Jesus to say, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Moreover, he puts the keys of the kingdom of heaven into his hands and says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. What a superhuman load of responsibility Jesus puts on the shoulders of Peter and every priest. A man, Peter, who is far from having a rock-like character. A moment later, Peter receives the harshest rebuke Jesus ever made to anybody. Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not on the side of God, but of men. Why does Jesus say that? Because Peter wanted to save his Lord Jesus Christ from suffering. Then Peter, somewhat later, he wanted to save himself from suffering when he denied the Lord three times at the warming fire in the courtyard of the high priest Caiaphas. How then is it possible then that we believe in a holy Catholic Church. This is the answer Cardinal Gerhard Müller, head of the Congregation of the Doctrine of Faith,
from 2012 to 2017, gave in his Manifesto of Faith, which I urge you to read, from February 2019, grounded on the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Quote, Jesus Christ founded the Church as a visible sign and instrument of salvation realized in the Catholic Church. He gave his Church, which emerged from the side of Christ who died on the cross, a sacramental constitution that will remain until the kingdom is fully achieved. Christ the head and the faithful as members of the body are a mystical person, which is why the church is sacred. For the one mediator has designed and sustained its visible structure. Through it, the redemptive work of Christ becomes present in time and space via the celebration of the holy sacraments especially the Eucharistic sacrifice in Holy Mass. The Church conveys with the authority of Christ the divine revelation, which extends to all the elements of doctrine, including the moral teaching, without which the saving truth of the faith cannot be preserved, explained, and observed." End of quote. Let me put it in simple words. The Catholic Church is founded by Jesus Christ as the instrument of salvation. Christ the head and those who are baptized and have faith in him are his body. Christ is present in his church through the holy sacraments to the end of time. The body of Christ can be wounded, but it cannot be destroyed. There's a famous dialogue between the Emperor Napoleon and Cardinal Consalvi, who in 801, 1801 was negotiating the concordat between Pope Pius VII and the Emperor. Napoleon put his foot down and said, are you aware, eminence, that I can destroy your church any time? The Cardinal answered, your majesty, are you aware that even we, the priests, didn't accomplish that in 1,800 years? <laughs> what must we do is the question of Pope Benedict at the end of his letter, after looking into the historical and theological causes of the present crisis. He points out three essentials. One, quote, only obedience and love to our Lord Jesus Christ can give us the right orientation. Learning to love God is the path of redemption for man. Our primal task in the moral upheavals of our time is that we ourselves, once again, begin to live by God and unto him." End of quote. Two, to become aware of the mystery of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in his real presence in the Eucharist. Three, the rediscovery of the mystery of the Church. As a convert to Catholic faith late in life, it was overwhelming to discover the bountiful graciousness of the church. It was like a banquet where you could never even eat all the foods offered for free. One of my first experiences was the mysterious power of the exposed blessed sacrament. I couldn't bear to be close 
and had to move to the back of the church. I tried again to come close and again had to move away. This was my experience of Peter saying to Jesus, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I experienced my first life-changing confession. I began to read the Bible and heard the Lord say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. I discovered the rosary as a saving rope to which I can hold on, and the mother of God as a source of help and as the ultimate example of what it is to be a woman and a mother and a disciple. I got acquainted with some of these incredible characters we call saints, who are the only true reformers of the church. I began to understand that my every deed, be it good or bad, has consequences for the whole of the church, the body of Christ. Virtues and vices are by no means private, but have impact on the economy of salvation. I began, I begin to understand slowly that suffering, consciously united with the suffering of Jesus Christ, is precious in the eyes of God and a condition of fruitfulness. Coming to the end, let us have one more look at the communication between the risen Lord and Peter at the Lake of Tiberias. The Lord stands at the shore, unrecognized by the disciples, and asks the fishermen in the boat, Children, have you any fish? They answered, No. And the man at the shore tells them to throw out the net on the other side of the boat. They catch more than the net can hold. John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, says to Peter, It is the Lord. And right away, Peter jumps into the water. Again, like at the empty tomb, John sees and believes, and Peter acts. There's something between Jesus and Peter that needs to be dealt with. The meeting of eyes in the courtyard of Caiaphas, followed by Peter's bitter tears of remorse for having indeed denied the Lord three times before the cock crowed. Now the risen Lord calls Peter and asks him three times, do you love me more than these? Three times Peter answers, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And three times the Lord says to him, Feed my sheep and feed my lambs. What do we learn from the crisis of our church? Even though we fall, sin and betray, one thing is needed to love Jesus more than anything else. Jesus says, quote, If a man loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Thank you very much for your attention. This MP3 recording has been made available by Family Life International. Help us to make many more available in order to promote our Catholic faith. Go to www.familyandlife.org.uk and donate today. <laughs>